0: Seek above
1: all for a game worth playing. Welcome to this episode of Make Yoga Magic Again, the House of Mages podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arulean Cumming. I am a mischievous mage, a lover of wisdom, and a seeker of mysteries, amongst a myriad of many other weird and wonderful weavings. The House of Mages is a school of yoga, tantra, and the magical arts. We run yoga teacher training and have a membership platform that gives you access to an extensive curriculum in developing your magical abilities, with some of the best teachers in the world on various esoteric arts. In this episode, I chat with Chloe Fraser, aka Fae Folk Jewelry. Faith jewellery is handmade using mainly recycled sterling silver, 9 karat gold and Australian opals cut locally or by Chloe herself. Chloe draws inspiration from all things magical and enchanting along with the essences of the stones themselves, letting the design happen naturally. She feels all her pieces are an intricate extension of her current self and will forever grow and change as she develops as both an artist and human. Chloe will be speaking on her creation process, how she built her business, and her desire to support her fellow creators in their journey, sharing her pitfalls, what she wished she knew when she started out, and all the tips and tricks she's learned in her journey as an entrepreneurial alchemist. This is an episode you don't want to miss. So without further ado, talismanic trailblazer, Gem Jubilee, and creator of Fay Folk Jewelry, Chloe Fraser. Today, I have with me Chloe Fraser of Fay Folk Jewelry. Thanks for joining me today.
0: Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me on.
1: It's glad to. Um, yeah, we've been talking about doing this podcast for a little while now. We've been hanging out for about six months. And yeah, we originally connected to collaborate on a project, which we are still working on, and it's coming together very nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, But yeah, we've been hanging out a fair bit the last six months and Chloe has become definitely one of my favourite humans. And she's such a multifaceted being, both in her creations and her business sense, but also just in her multifaceted, dorky, (laughs) insightfulness. Uh, So yeah, I'm really, really excited to finally chat with her about all the things Chloe Fraser and Fay Folk Jewelry. So the first thing... I guess we should start with is why Fay folk
0: why Fay folk uh yeah i was actually thinking about this the other day so Fay folk originally came from my original business name being off with the fairies so mm. i wanted to make um festival gear for um like costume stuff for like you know big headdresses and fairy wings and all these sorts of things and so it kind of seemed fitting to somehow implement some fairy name into what I was doing and offer the fairies because I was you know doing a lot of costumes for festivals it kind of had a little bit of an unprofessional feel to it so I sat on that for about a year and then the more I got into making jewellery the more I wanted to sort of bring that professionalism in and make jewellery for the fairy people so that's where fae folk originally came from.
1: Yeah cool Mm -hmm. I really like that. So how did you Yeah, how did you get to that point? I'd love to just start at the beginning and really just kind of travel back to how you first started the idea of becoming a jeweler uh, or whatever you would call all the different uh, things that you do mixed (laughs) together. And yeah, kind of just like what were your inspirations? What was the journey like getting there? And yeah, just whatever you want to share about, about where... What's brought you to this point?
0: Okay, that's a big question. So I never intended on doing jewellery. When I was in high school, I wanted to be a hairdresser. And so I went to a tech school, um, which is where you have normal, um, like, VCE subjects, and then you also do trade subjects as well. So things like guitar building, hairdressing, fashion design, um, and there was jewellery making at school. Mm. I had no interest in it, didn't do it. And it wasn't until years later, where, as I said, I was making costumes for festivals, and um, I wanted to implement little bits of sort of metalwork into my work, and I did a basic jewelry course. All I wanted to do was just make tiny little matching trinkets, and it was about three weeks into doing that basic jewelry course that the penny dropped for me. I was like, "This is this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. How do I do this?" Mm. And so. I spoke to the teachers and I was like, you know, is there any sort of like full-time course? Like what's the deal with apprentice apprenticeships, that sort of thing. And they're like, yeah, well, we run a, a full-time advanced diploma in engineering and manufacturing technologies, which is big fancy way of saying jewelry and object design. So after I did that basic jewelry course, that was, that was what I needed to do. Um, I, the next year went into full-time jewellery study. And yeah, it's just been this like ever evolving uh, journey ever since then. And it's taken on so many evolutions and gone through so much. I started that in 2013 was when I did the basic jewellery course. Uh, I went to full-time study in 2014 and finished that in
1: 2016.
0: Yeah. And then Fay Folk Jewellery was kind of born in 2017. And yeah, it's kind of rolled on ever since yeah
1: what made you choose jewelry over the festival gear like because I know you mentioned that obviously like all the little bits and pieces that were that kind of guided you into that but yeah is there anything in particular that was like 100% I'm doing jewelry or is it was it more of a slow burn
0: I think it was more of a slow burn I think initially when I was making costumes for festivals there just seemed to be so many missing parts with what I wanted to do and like you know, my, my graduate exhibition piece wound up being a helmet and that kind of stemmed (laughs) from, you know, me making these like feathery head adornments. And as I was doing that, I just felt like I had so many missing skills. And when I did that basic jewellery course, it kind of was the answer to all of those little missing bits that I wanted to implement to my work. And so, yeah, it kind of was a slow burn, I guess. Not like a pivotal moment where I was like, ah, this is, this is why I'm doing this.
1: Yeah because you've got a pretty defined style. Like I've noticed since I've been familiar with what you do, like I not only notice, like we were looking through your Etsy the other day mm. and it's so easy to tell what your style is. Yeah. And, um, and also it's affected me and probably quite a few others um, <laughs> that it's made me look at other pieces differently, being like, oh, well, it's nice, but it's like, it's not Fey Folk, <laughs> but um, but seriously though, like there is a really defined style, and mm. you know, someone who's you know, obviously, if you're watching the video, I don't really have much jewelry. I haven't really been in to jewelry much. Obviously, I'm very interested now, but for someone, you know, especially like me, who's not familiar with jewelry, but is able to notice the difference so much, like. When would you say that you've... I know you probably developed that style over time, mm. but is there, like, a moment where you, you're you like, oh, wow, I've got a style, like, I've, I've got a very definitive style?
0: Yeah, I feel like I've gone through this so many times with with my sort of journey to becoming a jeweller because I feel like I have, at so many points, had my definitive style. And there are some people who've known my work for you know, seven years and would have said what I was doing seven years ago was my definitive style.
1: Mm.
0: What I've landed on recently, or at the moment, what Fae Folk has like truly become and will continue to be, so I think at the moment. Um, Yeah, I I suppose I landed on that maybe, it would have been maybe 2018 when I first started exploring working with wax. So when we were studying jewellery, we learnt casting, which is where you make jewellery out of wax. Um, that gets sent off, encased in plaster, the wax gets melted out, and metal gets poured in. So everything you make out of wax comes back as a exact replica in silver. When we were in school, we were learning carving wax. And so we get these big chunky blocks and we were carving a thing out of it. Um, the moment that I started to delve out of that and get into like soft wax and, you know, going through all these like gooey, flowy, organic messy designs, that was when I was like, ah, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to be working with. And, yeah, it's just kind of been refining that for the last maybe five years or so. Yeah, okay. Mm.
1: Are there any, because uh, I know you, like, into gaming and fantasy and all that sort of stuff, mm. like, is there any, like, movies or games or books that you feel have inspired your style?
0: yeah it's a tricky question i mean i think so many things overall have inspired me it's probably a bit low to say but i would probably say that my ridiculous amount of time that i spent playing world of warcraft has definitely influenced my style yeah um you know i was always like a night elf or blah 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 and like i liked all these sort of you know swishy swirly sort of art nouveau yeah styles that you find in like the elven fantasy realms and i took a lot of inspiration from that
1: yeah cool do you do you find because the jewelry world is like a like an industry is like a very whole new world to me mm. um i'd love to know more about like how because from what you've told me as well like you are a bit of an enigma in the industry in quite a few different ways yeah and so i'd love to start with yeah. Do you find that other jewelers, um, like in your industry and stuff like that, uh, have similar influences? Especially, have you actually one quick question? Have you met another? Have you met another jeweler that loves Wow as well?
0: I don't know. I don't think so. I think there's been. Oh, it's hard to say because there's so many people that I know that have sort of dabbled in jewelry, but have not like stuck to it. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think so, but I'm sure there's maybe like one or two in the back of the brain somewhere. Yeah, it might not have
1: like got comfortable enough to have that conversation. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's it. Yeah, so yeah, I I haven't met too many like nerd jewelers, but they're out there. They're surely out there. Mm.
1: What is something that you, from the inside, um, rather than viewing from the outside, is a big difference that you noticed of your own desires for creating things? Like what was missing in the industry that you or wanting to fill like what were you desiring to see more of in the industry and and also in the opposite like what inspired you from other jewelers as well
0: yeah okay um this might be like a little bit sort of off tiny bit off from your question but it it will sort of arc back i guess um i feel like when it comes to my inspiration and my drive i do feel like a lot of the time i get a lot of inspiration from filling gaps that other people haven't filled and mm. finding opportunities where other people haven't found those opportunities. So there's been a lot of like artistic inspiration. But the I suppose the most pivotal inspirational moment for me was when I went to uh, this guy Hans's house. So he was a opal jewellery manufacturer. He had um, 12 people working under him. He was exporting opal jewellery around the world, high-end opal jewellery. Um, The sort of stuff that you would have seen like in the 70s and 80s, if anyone's, you know, familiar with opal jewellery from back then. Uh, So very, very, very different to what you see, you know, coming up now. So I went to his to buy some jewellery tools and uh, he had wheelie bins of opal offcuts from Lightning Ridge. And I never really was interested in opal and didn't really care much for it and actually didn't want to work with stones at all at that point. I was just there to buy jewelry tools from him to um, further my hand fabricating skills rather than wax working skills. Mm. Um, And yeah, I was scrabbling through his wheelie bins of opal offcuts. And I remember pulling out this big chunk of purple crystal opal. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that opal came in this color.
1: Mm.
0: And he was like, yeah, that's the rubbish. We don't use that. That's like, you know, the low grade crap. And I was like, whoa, hang on you guys don't use this, you've got wheelie bins full of this. I'm like, this is like some of the most beautiful stuff I've ever seen. Mm. And, you know, everyone's seeking like red on black, super expensive, super rare. Like I couldn't give a rat's about that. The the purple rubbish to me was like this like golden nugget and it really set me on this path where I was like, people need to see this. Mm. People People need to like understand that this is out there and this is the low grade and I can bring this into the jewellery world and, you know, make something from this rubbish. Yeah. Because I feel like so many people would have exactly the same opinion that it is this beautiful rubbish and yeah yeah
1: yeah. So when you say rubbish, like from someone who has no idea about how to grade opal and mm. the quality, like what makes an opal a higher grade and like what what is the difference?
0: So that's that's a that's a big fat question. Yeah, <laughs> but I will I will simplify it. Kind of as much as I can in regards to specifically Lightning Ridge opal. So Lightning Ridge opal, um, that's where the black opal comes from. So what people are looking for in the highest quality opal is brightness of color and reds. So the color spectrum, so the lowest quality opal is purple, goes through to purple, blue, green, yellow, red. And then body tone. So body tone, if it's like a white background all the way through to black, white being the lowest grade, black being the highest grade, and then there's crystal, which is kind of like its own separate thing. Again, same sort of colour gradient. The more brighter it is, the more expensive it is. And crystal is worth less than black opal, and purple being the cheapest opal. So if you've got purple crystal, that's kind of like the bottom range of Lightning Ridge. If you have black with red on top, that's the highest.
1: And who, who decides all that? And like, how did they first decide? Do you know, like when they started to grade it and, you know, and how they decided on that? Um, who did it, like why they do it? And yeah, is it based on like mineral composition or is it all about the look or yeah, like? W-
0: I think it's two things. I think it's rarity. So to find a black body tone opal is really rare. Um, to find crystal it's yeah, it's like abundant in, in terms mm. of you know like lightning ridge opal um, it's still hard to find but yeah so it would be rarity and it would be appearance so people want bright flashy like yummy cool patterns and stuff like that Yeah. and again I suppose they're probably harder to find than you just low grade like duller opals
1: okay mm. so two two more questions around uh, opal style and quality well maybe not so much quality more style Mm. do you have your own personal favorite Mm -hmm. uh type of type of opal and do you find like what what do you find sorry do you is there a pattern in certain types of opal that's like that sell more than others in your own range uh for example
0: yeah for sure so it's interesting as i said purple's kind of like lower grade when it comes to boulder opal it's kind of a different story um Boulder opal is 100% my favourite. There's so much character in it. So, boulder opal is different to Lightning Ridge opal. Boulder opal is where you get big chunks of opal from Queensland. So, it's um, very specific to Queensland. You get these tiny little seams of opal running through these, like, big brown boulders. And when you split that open, you get opal face. Mm. So, anytime you see a boulder opal, it's got a tiny, tiny, like, maybe half a mil thick layer of opal on top of host rock. Um, So those opals in particular tend to throw really interesting colours, interesting patterns. Um, They have so much more character than Lightning Ridge, in my opinion, or any other opal in the whole world, in my Mm. opinion. Um, I find that my customers in particular love swooshy purples. Everyone loves the swooshy purples and pinks. As soon as I get any of those, which, yeah, as I said, it's interesting because that's kind of like the lower grade. Um, Yeah, people love it. But I think we can throw that whole, like, rarity thing out the window because it's, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, as they say.
1: Yeah, and it's so interesting. Like, for example, that green one that you made recently that I I was joking that I put a spell on so it wouldn't (laughs) sell so I could keep it for myself.
0: Yeah, it's Um, still here on my finger. Yeah, it's
1: so interesting, like, why we're drawn. Like, have you ever thought Mm. about that? Why, you know, like, have you ever just been captivated by an opal or a stone in general and just, Mm. like, wondered? Why? Other than the obvious, oh, it looks really nice. But have you, like, delved into that? Because obviously we want to venture into, like, kind of more esoteric magical territory of, like, Mm. the essences of of stones and jewelry and stuff like that other than just the look and aesthetic. Um, But, yeah, I'd love to, like... Because the thing is, well, you've spent such, like, more intimate time Mm. with these stones than probably most people have ever have. Yeah, for sure. And so I'd love to, like, you know... What what's it like getting to know with the stones and hang, hanging out with them? Like, do they all have, like, very, <laughs> very, like, uh, are some more mischievous than others? You know, <laughs> like, uh, I'd love to know about your kind of, like, fae folk ponderings of the, your relationship with the stones. Mm,
0: yeah, interesting. I, yeah, it's funny because, like, you are drawn to certain stones. You are drawn to certain colours. And I do find that, well, I've found personally that there's been three stones that I've been drawn to, which are kind of sort of in the same family. So that's opal. That's labradorite and that's moonstone. And I always find myself going back to these. Like, I'm currently wearing labradorite at the moment. Mm. I find that as soon as I have a lab pendant, I constantly put it on. I constantly find myself just, like, in comfy land putting this on. Mm. And, you know, I don't know what to make of that other than, like, I think I absolutely adore this stone. But, um, yeah, I suppose when I, when I first started getting into gemstones, I was really taken by moonstone and lab because... They had these really kind of like beautiful, ethereal glows about them. They might mm. look like a boring rock and then you hit them in the sunshine and they get this like crazy blue flash mm. or like rainbow flash. And I was really kind of taken by that. And um, yeah, I remember telling you this story that for my 21st, my my nana and grandpa wanted to buy me a gold watch. And I was kind of like, oh, look, that's nice. Like, I appreciate that. <laughs> but to be honest, I kind of want just a sterling silver ring with a moonstone in it yeah and they're like really like you just want like a little little moonstone ring and yeah they they bought me my beautiful moonstone ring and I cherish it so much compared to you know the gold watch which is an amazing gesture Mm. um but yeah it kind of just I don't know it's like so I'm so drawn to it and it was kind of like this little reminder of home when I went traveling and yeah it was kind of just felt like a little sort of comfort stone and that's that's kind of what I feel like when I When I work with these three stones, every other stone, I feel like I don't have that much attachment to them. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I don't know like where and why and what to make of that, but that is what it is.
1: Yeah, cool. Well, that's a good segue into, uh, yeah, talking about the kind of like subjective and objective essences of stones, because I feel like you're a really good balance. Obviously, like you're off with the fairies (laughs) um, and, you know, you're very connected with the kind of like fey world and the esoteric and all that sort of stuff. And we've had some gr- good conversations about that, but also you're very grounded, very logical. Um, yeah. And scientific, even in a lot of aspects of what, um, what you do and who you are. And so, yeah, I'd love to just like touch on that blending of worlds in, you know, we've chatted before about how some people are just locked on to this stone means this, and this is this. So mm. I'd love to just like start off with, what's your, your opinion or own personal opinions on, you know, do stones, certain stones have like certain, uh, you know, kind of energetic or archetypal energies, um, in your opinion, have you delved into that at all? Have you worked with that at all? And also, I'm not sure if you know, but like, um, if you have any like knowledge of how those stones actually got those associations in the first place. Mm. Because I think people forget that everything comes from somewhere, you know, and from someone. So a lot of these ideas that we talk about, whether they're angel numbers or just like that are amethysts connected to wisdom or something, um, is that the ideas came from someone. Someone's Mm. obviously made it up, could have like completely made it up on the spot uh, based on their own interpretation, or they could have got it from somewhere else. But um, Mm. yeah, I'd love to just delve into all of that.
0: For sure. So, my theory on that, I mean, this is something that I haven't delved into too much, but my theory on that is um, the lady that wrote the Crystal Bible, she is kind of the one who said, This means this, this means that. Um, I'm not really sure where she's gotten a lot of these ideas and like where they've come from and why she said these things, but I do think that a lot of people have clung to those ideas. Mm. And we, we've been talking about like the, you know, the chakra system and stuff like that and how people go and associate gemstones to certain chakras. Mm. Um, and w- which I find it's, it's kind of difficult to comprehend because like, you know, say you have a red chakra, people associate all red gemstones with that one chakra. To me, it doesn't make any sense because the molecular structure is completely different in all of those red stones. Yeah. So I can't understand that side of it. And I don't really delve into the meanings behind stones. I kind of, you know, I've done a lot of mind, body, spirit festivals where a lot of people will ask me, oh, what does this stone mean? Mm. And my usual answer is to say to people, you know, that's up to your interpretation. I think that every single gemstone is going to mean something different, whether or not it's kind of this, you know, otherworldly esoteric or whether it's, you know, the, the feeling that you put towards it. Yeah. But in saying that, I have had very strange experiences where I've had many people say the same story about one particular gemstone. Mm. And I have Googled it, and it's not something that they've bought off Google. It's not something that they've found in the Crystal Bible, where people find it hard to wear Labradorite. And I've had a lot of people come up to me saying, How can you wear that all day? Or how can you sleep with that on? You know, isn't that like too agitating for you? Doesn't that like give you be crazy dreams? And I've had a bunch of people say that they get sort of negative feelings, or they get really antsy or they get, like, crazy mm-hmm. dreams when they're around Labradorite. Yeah. And, yeah, it's always been that one, one, like, you know, anomaly that people are saying the same story with. Yeah. So there's got to be something there. Yeah. I'm assuming, but I just... My logical brain goes, you know, is it is it the frequency of the rock? Like, are we that sensitive to those frequencies? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's it's still it's still unfolding in the brain, I guess.
1: Yeah. Same. Yeah. It's tricky because I think it's it is a mix of both. Because, like, uh, so in like the teaching world, there's these two uh, terms called prescriptive and descriptive. And descriptive is when you don't really know about an ex- experience before you experience it, and you just describe what you experience. So it's like, you know. Like a blind test of like picking up a stone or something like that, you have no idea what it is, and Mm. you're basically describing what you're experiencing, so you haven't already attached, you know, a meaning to it. Whereas, uh, prescriptive is saying to someone, Yeah, this is like an amethyst or this is a moonstone, you're going to experience this, this, and this, Mm. and so naturally, you're going to experience that somewhat because you're uh like prescribed yeah. to experience it totally um and that's what happens a lot in like uh meditation practices and chakra systems like chakra system is a perfect example and just like since we're all the subject and i love talking like this just <laughs> briefly like because um it's, a, it's an important note especially because there's probably people here that associate stones with chakras and things like that and that is also fine so all of this is actually hundred percent valid if you experience those things yourself. For sure. But just also like an invitation to question things and to figure out your own interpretations, because in every tradition there's so many. If, like for example, the seven chakra rainbow system is actually only a hundred years old maximum. There's actually no evidence whatsoever before that of any rainbow chakra system, and and in fact the like the associations of like the red to the root chakra is only a modern thing in the last hundred years Mm. most of the time in all the ancient scriptures um is like the root chakra is usually associated with gold so it's a golden square the water chakra or the 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 sacral chakra which is usually orange is actually a silver moon and Mm. so i'm not saying that you know, your, your you know, sacred chakra has to be a silver moon, mm. but that's the more traditional association. And so it's it's just interesting to bring our awareness to things. So I think it's just more of an invitation to tap into our own interpretation of it mm. rather than someone else, you know, telling us this is what you're going to experience, this is what you yeah. have to experience, and this is the truth.
0: Yeah, 100%. Um, this is what I tell people constantly. You know, people are always, like, as I said, people constantly want to say to me, you know, what does this mean? What's this going to do for me? And it's like, this is your interpretation. This is what you're going to get from it. It's like, yeah. you know, that's not up to me. Mm.
1: Yeah. And, um, and talking about prescriptive or, like, you know, uh, leaning in a certain direction of things, because um, what we're doing together is creating a set of Talfa, which is a, like a traditional uh, rune talisman, where we mix runes together with a, with a very certain intent, Mm-hmm. and I know that you said you don't do that as much because obviously I love that you want to just... I feel like I envision it is like you're providing the vehicle or the catalyst for someone else to really decide what they want to do with it, like mm-hmm. what kind of talisman that's going to create, and I think that's actually really beautiful because you're basically creating the platform um, and the amulet for someone to develop their own relationship with it, which is really yeah. cool and unique. For sure. Um, but I'm also interested in yeah do you like or have you done or are you planning on uh you know obviously we're creating this together at telfer mm. which are very specific uses yeah um and and kind of energies but yeah what's your experience with that kind of stuff like did you start off more in that direction have you been branching off in that direction like yeah just all yeah. all about that kind yeah. of practice
0: it's definitely not been something that's been in my life at all leading up to this point and it's really interesting that we have collaborated on this when we have because, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, like probably about a week before I met you, about how I wanted to get into doing things with more sort of like amulet, sigilly type things and like mm. working with runes. But um, like, as, as, as I've said to you before, that I don't know that world and I don't feel like I can give it the respect that it needs. And so I just haven't um but it has been something that's been in the mind a lot and it's kind of i don't know i've i've felt like i almost am not the right person to delve into that so i haven't and then you know you've come along and we've created this this sort of collaboration and it's exactly what i wanted to delve mm. into um but yeah giving it the more knowledge and more respect than than what i can um, but personally no not at all it's it's been yeah it's been at the back of the brain but it's just not something that i've taken that step towards Mm. solely
1: it's really been interesting though because so like just to basically like in a nutshell explain what a telpha is like runes are these 24 concepts of particular archetypal energies And so we pick certain parts of these to kind of like alchemize them and mix them together. And so like, cool, I want one that is, um, you know, helps me with eloquence and speech. And then I also want one that's going to like help me calm my nerves. And then I also want one that's (laughs) going to connect me with like fellow people. So you mix those together and then you've got essentially an amulet that can help you with eloquence and speech while also keeping you calm and keep giving you a natural rapport with other people. Yeah, so perfect Mm. for someone who wants to do more of that right mm-hmm. so that's like the the essential energy so it's like creating a sun that's like generating energy in a certain way but then the next step is how to work that into a piece of art through uh something called galdrstaffer which is actually like icelandic magical staves so you've got the runes but then you've got the all the staves that kind of I I picture it as, like, roots of a tree or branches of a tree starting to grow in certain directions. Mm. And so that's got a lot more artistic freedom. So it's been really interesting in giving you the basic tafa, so the the central runes and how you've constructed it, but then you go and and play with it yourself and you edit it. Mm. And it's so interesting, like, because that's why I think sometimes there's just an intuitive process in how to... And we're getting to... I know it sounds a bit woo-woo, like, manipulating energy and stuff, but for example, certain staves in certain ways mean certain things traditionally in the practice. And then I've given Chloe, you know, a template for a couple, like one in particular that we're working on at the moment. And then she's kind of shifted, changed it, manipulated the staves to suit what she thinks is best, both for practical purpose, but also like... And I'm like, wow, that makes so much sense. Like mm. uh, in how I view how staves are meant to be adjusted in even how she's like added like little bits like um like the heart in in Grace Gleaner to like kind of yeah extend in, into that and so yeah I'd love to one just say say I know you you think you may not be like as you know like uh, equipped for this, but mm. I think you underestimate I think you Chloe's a very humble person, <laughs> which I love, but uh, she's got a lot of power. And yeah, so I'd love to know that process with both working with the Talfa but also now we're getting into the point where we're working with very direct specific purposes for these ambulants mm-hmm. and so not only are you creating them with that in mind but then starting to manipulate in certain ways and even choose stones mm. for them as well because obviously you're going to choose a stone for the purpose and yeah i'm interested to hear how that process is going mm-hmm. with you so far
0: yeah, the stones is an interesting one um, because, like, we've we've spoken about this before, I have synesthesia, which is where mm. you associate colours with, um, you know, numbers, letters, names, words, all these sorts of things. And I think that that is where that plays into. So I don't necessarily think about what stone is going to be good for this particular telfer. It's what colour I see or what stone that I just in my, you know, my brain think is going to suit this piece. Mm-hmm. It's not like I'm sitting there going through the crystal bible and going, "Oh, we need one that's going to be good for the heart, blah blah blah." It's mm. like it just to me, I know what what stone is right yeah. for that piece purely because of me and my teacher.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, could you I know it's like a a difficult thing to explain, but I'd love to for you to like delve into that a little bit more and how mm. that's affected your your art and and stuff like that over over yeah. the years.
0: Yeah, it's something that I haven't really thought about too much um, up until recently. My housemate brought it up. Um, actually, I brought it up to her, and it's it's been sort of swirling around in my brain a lot lately. And I'm trying to sort of think about why and how it would play any effect in my art, but I can't really sort of comprehend where and why. But I know it will it will have at some point. Mm. Um, but yeah, pretty much the way the way that that works for me is. Um, I, as I said, I associate colours with, you know, words, letters, numbers, names, etc. cetera, that usually I suspect is a case of, like, when I meet Daniel, Daniel's wearing black and red, and so in my brain, Daniel's colour is black and red, but then, mm. you know, a bit of blue came into that because one of our friends is talking about his floor and he had, like, these blue things on the floor, and so that's added into it. Mm. And a lot of it is, I think stemming from the colour that I see either the person wearing or, you know, it would have been maybe when I was younger, we might, we might have had like, you know, coloured magnets or something that had like letters and numbers. And I've just, that's what's stuck mm, in my brain.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, as for things like the telfa, I could not tell you for the life of me mm. where this colour has come from. And I suppose this is how it does play into my art is that I do, I have a very colourful brain. Mm. And so that's got to weave its way into my work somehow. I just couldn't tell you exactly how that would be and logically explain why.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky. I I have a tendency to want to rationalise everything, but I think some of the most beautiful pieces of art um, and magic can't really be fully rationalised. And I guess that's what makes it magic. Yeah. Because it's like always just in between the gaps. Yeah, totally. It's like got this mischievous... Uh, unknowability, mm. which both frustrates me and um, and I absolutely love.
0: Yeah, that's it. So. Well, that's that's magic, isn't it?
1: So I would love to delve more into like the practicalities of like your how you've developed your business. Uh, I know like you're kind of stepping into you're going to be a, a guest speaker on the next Heretic event here on the Sunshine Coast, uh. and you're kind of um, you know <laughs> uh, biting the bullet, stepping up in in new ways, and um, you know starting to help to Educate people on yeah the pitfalls and and mm. just like sharing your your journey and stories and all that. So I, I would love to delve into that for a second, but just uh, before we get into more of that sort of stuff, I would love to just like finish off the little magical esoteric section mm. um, and just ask you a question around if you if say a mage uh, came to you and commissioned you to make them three artifacts uh that they just believed with all their all of their being that you would just create them the right thing um it could be any kind of artifact in really any style um but it would be three three different pieces and each would have a very specific power yeah so Mm -hmm. you can you can make it more mugglish and just you know (laughs) might help you save money or you can make it as magical and ridiculous as as you want because I know you have a very magical imagination um so yeah what would be the process of it um what would they look like what would they be uh what kind of powers would they give and and why
0: this is a very loaded question
1: very loaded question
0: (laughs) so oh you know what comes to my mind straight away is when I was studying, um, I studied jewellery full time just after I went for a trip to Europe for quite a while. And when I came back from that trip, I was so, so inspired by the Galileo Museum. And I had in my mind that I had this, this grand, ridiculous range that I wanted to make, which was where um, there was like this kind of whimsical, magical, gold-looking contraption that you wear around your neck and it unfolds into uh, scales. Mm. and, like, you could, you know, unfold this necklace and, like, piece all the things together to make, like, the little, you know, like, Libra. Yeah. Like yeah.
1: Um,
0: and a watch that was, again, something that you could unfold and it had a magnet in it so you could find where, you know, north and south were and Ooh. you could unfold the pieces to be able to make a sundial on your wrist as a watch. Yeah. And the ring, oh, I can't even remember what it was, but it was something along the lines of that as well. I think it might have been, like, a little poison ring with, like, a little, little contraption in it where you can open it up and whatever. So that that's what comes to mind.
1: Okay. Would you say a little poison ring?
0: Yeah, poison um, poison ring or poison necklaces where you have, like, a little chamber in it. It's, like, you can, like, open it up. It's got, like, a little compartment in it.
1: Okay. Where's that term from, poison
0: ring? I don't know. I'm not sure. I think... I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, cool. That, yeah, I mean, I'd love to go a little bit more into these. Like, yeah. how... Because I'm... Yeah, that's so interesting. It's real. It's like it reminds me. Of actually, we were talking about. Um, I've actually got to hear "The Night Circus," one of my favorite books, and mm. um, some of the magical contraptions the clockmaker made in that book, and it really reminds me of that. Yeah. Actually, um, yeah, true. because you've so you've already told me about some of like both the stuff you've actually created in the past, just mm. when you've been playing around with stuff, but also some of the ideas that you've had bouncing around. Because yeah, yeah, like obviously there's practical limitations and things, but. I think also I'm just interested in like, if you could create anything,
0: mm. yeah, what
1: would you create?
0: If I could create anything, gosh, that's that's a big old question.
1: I guess I we're, we're starting even to know. get there.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that was something that was like swirling around, around my brain for ages and it's something that I would like to create. Oh, if I could create anything.
1: If I could add one little caveat of question, if you yeah. were a character in, say, like a a movie or a storybook or something like that that had a magical uh, thing, you know, it could be a watch, could be a clock, could be, I don't know, a little pocket something, Um, what would it be and what would it do? This
0: might sound a little bit savage, but I've always wanted, like, a little ceremonial dagger, just, like, really (laughs) ornate, like, gem-encrusted, like, super etched, like, incorporating every type of metal and, like, you know, gemstone in it that would be cool that's if I could have like a little magical artifact that's what it would be but I don't know what or why
1: and what kind of powers would it have what would it do what, like what would it give the wielder why why would why would other than it looking amazing why would it cast wonder into the eyes and ears and beings of everyone in the land in that story <laughs> that you that you wield it <laughs> oh. also i just just like putting out there that chloe has no idea that i was uh, like i've prompted her about a few of the little questions i was gonna ask but i'm just throwing Put these curve, the curve balls out so give her some credit if she she needs a moment to yeah to to ponder it it's not an easy question
0: no it's not hmm oh, i don't even know yeah we were talking about slowing down time before. Oh
1: yeah, that's right.
0: I think that that could be a cool thing. But ooh. you know, how magical are we going?
1: That would fit well for a dagger. Mm. I can imagine a ceremonial dagger that maybe, like, as you turn it or something like that, it like slows mm. down time and speeds up time. And you could even like cut little bits out of time. Cut like cut cut a Swiping. slit into the time space continuum and hop through. And oh, we're getting prettier. Uh, there we go. Yeah. There
0: we go. We're onto something now.
1: Yeah, cool. <laughs> I actually hope, so so hope you do make something like that in the future because I think've we've, we've touched on this that mm. um, I one part about ceremonial magic that I love is is the implements that you either create or that you seek out. Yeah. And so in like a lot of the grimoires and ceremonial magical traditions, um, you either create your own, but they recommend some you seek out, either get it made for you or if you just find it. And to me that's like such a magical, Like scavenger hunt process of finding your magical implement and like although I don't believe you need magical like actual tools to do magic I think they make the process so much more fun and actually magical and we've talked about how I would love if you created like ritual implements like that like it could Mm. be like a candle holder or it could be a magical dagger or there's like so many little like um, you know altar implements um, that I reckon you would absolutely like make magical stuff for.
0: Yeah, for sure. And this is something that has been sort of in the in the brain for a little bit because I've been wanting to I mean, I I don't sit well. I don't sit still very well. I've always mm. got to be all evolving and changing and like dabbling in every single little corner or everything I possibly can. And so the next sort of step for me at the moment, I think, is I wanna get into blacksmithing. And so mm. I wanna I wanna incorporate what I'm doing now with precious metals and precious gemstones Along with blacksmithing and to be able to make things like, you know, candle holders and like little ceremonial daggers and this sort of thing. And like, you know, big chunky like iron necklaces weaved in with sterling silver wrapped around it and these sorts of things. So it's kind of, it's in the pipeline. Yeah. Well,
1: I feel like you're pretty connected with your community. uh, So... Uh, little uh, invitation out there, anyone who's listening, I feel like the more that we prod yeah. and uh, prompt Chloe to Any create this sort her? of stuff, <laughs> I think she would get onto it. So, yeah, I would love your support in getting some some ritual <laughs> daggers and candle holders and uh, all these different things <laughs> um, created. That would be amazing. Mm. Cool. Well, um, yeah, let's segue into the next part, which is is just, yeah, really, like, unpacking, because obviously you're an amazing... Artist in what you do, but mm. you're also a really clued-on, organized, successful entrepreneur. Yes. And so, I'd love to talk about some of the pitfalls that you encountered, like early in the business, that basically just what what you wish you knew uh, if you were you starting out again, yeah. and you could like give yourself a little guidebook. Okay. Um, I know everything you know has happened to make you grow and stuff like that, but what? what would have helped you speed things up or
0: yeah if this was something that um like this is something that i have been thinking about a lot lately and something that i'm probably going to touch on in the talk i'm going to do at your event um pricing pricing was a really tricky one and it's always been a really tricky one and i find so many people in you know the artist industry artistic industry and small business um world don't know how to price themselves properly yeah and it's, it's something that I genuinely think that needs to be revised on the whole and really needs to be talked about by so many more people. Because I think, I think finance is a really taboo subject for a lot of people to talk about. So nobody wants to talk about you know, what they earn, what they, you know, like what they did for the week, yeah. what they're charging, why they're charging. It's a really kind of like hush-hush situation for a lot of people. Um, and I do genuinely think that what we were taught at TAFE set us up for failure. And it took me a really, really, really long time to sort of maybe even only the last year or two. And that's like, what, nine years down the track after learning what I learned at TAFE. I'm only starting to get clarity on how much that little aspect set us up for failure. Yeah.
1: And if you could just go into that a little bit more, like what what did you actually learn at TAFE and mm. like what in particular do you think was... The path to failure,
0: failure. failure. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's going to be, it's tricky to sort of describe in words without actually looking at like the maths in front of you. But I'll, I'll try and simplify it as much as possible. Um, pretty much what we were taught at TAFE is to price your work. And this is something that a lot of artists do as well. This is something that I constantly hear artists talking about is the way they price their work. Very common pricing is materials plus labour. Plus an overhead charge, um, which is something maybe like five to fifteen dollars that could be to cover things like drill bits, packaging, tooling, you know all those little um, side costs, those three together, so materials, labor, overhead charge, times one point eight and that's been a pretty standard system that a lot of people use, and I over the years have found that that doesn't work every single time i Extrapolate that and look at where all those costs are going. Um, I'm finding myself, you know, l- looking at I'm earning like five dollars an hour, mm-hmm. and uh, constantly artists are finding the same thing that they are when they pull apart exactly what they're charging, that's what they're finding that they're, you know, they're earning like five to ten dollars an hour. And yeah, I, I do think, as I said, I think it set us up for failure. Like, I I was very stubborn and persistent in becoming a jeweller, and I think I'm the only one in my year level that is a full-time jeweller because I constantly, constantly pushed what I was taught. And um, had I not, I wouldn't have been able to do this for a job. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah, I think if if I was told, if I could tell me nine years ago that I should scrap what TAFE and what people were taught, you know, what people talk about constantly as a pricing scheme and use rather um, charging no less than 100 an hour. That is, like, the minimum you should charge per hour and still using that pricing scheme. That is where you start to actually just tap into making a sustainable income. Mm. Um, but that's that's a very hard thing to sort of describe on this podcast it's something that you actually want to look at the maths and go okay yeah this is this is where all the costs are going this is why you would want to charge that yeah um but yeah i think that's the main thing that's the main thing that if i could tell any artist charge more
1: <laughs> yeah because i think it's like a for me like because i think it relates to all kinds of industries and businesses 100%, for is sure.
0: that
1: it's like finding that happy medium because if you're charging less than what you know your worth, mm. it ends up building up resentment and you don't put it, put it... Like, personally, I don't put as much effort in. Yeah. Uh, and so, it, like, I don't deliver the product as well. And then I also find myself less inclined to do more of it. Yeah. But over overcharging it, like... It, I build resistance to even asking for that if I feel like I'm not there yet. So it's like mm. a, it's like a slow build. It is
0: a slow build. And it's like, you can't, you can't go into the artist world going, yo, I'm going to charge a hundred an hour. Like you have to work towards that. It yeah. has to be like an ever evolving thing, but that should be the, the bar that you set yourself to like climb towards. Yeah. Um, yeah. Otherwise, you know, you will stagnate and you will sit at that like, five to ten an hour situation yeah. and it's yeah it's sad because I see so many people so many artists at markets constantly do that and it's like I actually just want to go around and have a chat with everyone and just yeah tell them
1: <laughs> yeah and I love that about you as a human but especially in like how you relate to other business we've talked about like just absolute transparency yeah in for sure. and we both kind of encountered this like kind of like keeping all the stuff for yourself this mm. gatekeeping kind of thing and talked about how in both of our completely different industries we've seen people who who really do this not succeed very well because it's like they kind of close themselves off from everyone and they end up getting like really paranoid and just like set themselves up for failure but yet the people who are doing the opposite of what you should be doing Mm. and you know like in my experience like yoga studios that let other studios put up advertisements yeah, for I their like own that. businesses inside a completely competition-based business yeah, are thriving. For sure. And so, yeah, like what led you to really like pushing and encouraging more transparency in, in what you do?
0: Yeah, I, that's interesting. I don't know what really led to it. I think it was kind of a, another one of those things that was a slow burn. It's something that constantly, I suppose, evolved in my brain that I... I suppose when I started, I felt like I was, you know, everyone else is my competition. Yeah. And I didn't like that. Um, I started cutting opals and my suddenly my competition became my customers. And that was really interesting because all of a sudden, um, the people who I should have been competing against and not should have, like, you know, in my brain, were my competition at that point, suddenly became my customers. And I was building this really beautiful community of jewellers. And, um, you know, it felt really good to talk to other jewellers about you know Mm. how to start and how to you know set opals and like you know giving them information and watching them grow and it it's probably something that's kind of been unpacking over the last maybe three years that I find I have shifted from rather than gatekeeping and not wanting to share with other jewellers like you know my education my suppliers you know all, all all the things that I've sort of gathered I want to share that with jewelers because in my eyes I think it's so much more valuable to encourage the artistic like the artisan community Mm. to be better and to put out better work and to encourage each other to be better and put pressure on the import market and so there's so much crap out there and so if we make more awareness and better quality artisan Mm. jewelry it puts pressure on the shit market. Yeah. And that's that's where my brain's at. And I think it's it's working really beautifully and it's it's been so nice to be a part of so many like jewelry communities and help each other and watch each other grow and it hasn't been a hindrance to any of us. Yeah. In fact, it's all it's done is help each other.
1: Yeah, I mean like I see you sh- sharing like all all these other jewelry accounts like on your Instagram and like mentioning how mu- like how much you love other jewellery pieces from different creators Mm -hmm. and even wearing like a lot of different, yeah, a lot of (laughs) different. So I absolutely love that. And, you know, and, you know, I know you're very humble about it, but, you know, I can say from, from knowing you for a little bit now and seeing what you do, like you're very successful and Mm -hmm. yeah, so that should just be an indicator. And, you know, from my own experience as well, is that like, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats or any other kind of like quote for basically just saying that there's enough, Opportunity out there for everyone, and for sure. like you said, if we're encouraging each other, it can only it can only make us better. And I think that's like a common thing in every industry and all over the world. Everyone wants to keep the good stuff for themselves, mm. but it halts progress, like overall global process totally. uh, in and progress in, yeah, in what we could do. Like if we're just all sharing and like, you know, like you look at open source programs and open source like technology and stuff like that. Once everyone gets Access to it, it just gets better and better and better, mm. and then you know, we all share the benefits. Yeah, yeah, I really, I, lo- I really love that approach um, that you've got as well. And um, yeah, is there any like other tips? Because, yeah, I mean, there's so much to go into. I'm just trying to think of like specific question because obviously you're going to um yeah you're going to be speaking soon uh you're looking at running some some workshops even as well helping Mm. um both like the practical aspects of of jewelers um i know you're working out the technicalities of that because it's like obviously a lot to teach yeah um and the practicalities of that but um yeah just some like little golden gems nuggets that you can um drop for you know anyone listening at the moment to if they're for someone who is like just starting out in the jury business and um yeah what what tips would you give
0: honestly the only overall thing that I can think of in my brain that's going to be like an overall applicable to anyone listening my, my biggest my biggest tip trick advice is stubborn persistence <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's not really anything that I can specifically go hey like this is a really good tip or trick like all, all of those little things are so intricate and it's so like trade specific. But I do want to put out there that if anyone does have any questions, like I'm open to it. Mm. If anyone is stuck on anything um, with, you know, when it comes to suppliers or tools or understanding a t- certain technique, like I'm here to, you know, answer those questions. But as an overall thing, I can't necessarily think of like a takeaway nugget of info mm, to give to the people. That's
1: also in a very impressive thing. I remember like recently you told me that uh, one of your posts got a lot of uh, replies and you made sure that you answered every one of them individually mm. and it, it took you days and like many 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 hours yeah. to get back to everyone
0: yeah I had I had a, a bit of a nightmare customer and um I won't go into the story but I put it on my Instagram I kind of like I was I was sitting on maybe sharing it for like two weeks and I was like oh do I want to put that negativity up there on my Instagram and I ended up sharing the story and yeah it was like over a hundred people replied to that which was crazy thank you everyone um yeah, I, I spent from 5 in the afternoon till 10 at night and then again at 7 in the morning till 11 o'clock the next day replying to every single person saying mm. how much like individual replies to everyone. You know, I appreciate that they've taken the time. I'll take the time back. Cool.
1: Yeah, cool. Mm. What about even just like because, uh, you know, we have focused on chatting like, you know, kind of directing some of the questions towards other entrepreneurs and other jewelers um, as well. But, yeah, even just, like, some words to your customers, like, just Because I think w- what I've noticed is that a lot of us have grown up with mainly just dealing with massive companies, right? Mm, yeah. You know, like, in... Especially growing up in a city or something like that, like, maybe it's a bit different in a small town. But we're so used to dealing with just massive corporations and we develop this, like... Weird, non-human communication where mm. we just ha- demand what we want because we know it's sometimes the only way we're going to get their attention. yeah, because these like big corporations are often very well trained to not give us what we want unless we just like kick up a fuss. yeah. But then when people have that same approach to like small businesses or even individuals, mm. um it can come off like I've, yeah, I think you've, you know, obviously experienced it as well. but I think a lot of us who run our own small business have experienced some real nastiness in that just like, not even talking to us as, as a human. Um, yeah. And I, I don't blame it cause, because of the reasons. I think it's just something that's become uh, an unconscious pattern in how we communicate with sure. businesses. But, yeah, if you could just, like, you know, just give some insight for just, you know, your your clients and customers who who uh, will work with you in the future or <laughs> who currently um, get stuff. From, yeah, just an insight into what it's like
0: yeah. and, and how
1: they can best uh (laughs) communicate with you in in a preferred way
0: yeah this is something that i've been really challenged with recently and it it is actually a reason why um i can i can open and honestly say that it's it's one of the biggest reasons why so many jewelers including myself don't do customs anymore Mm. um i i don't necessarily don't do customs anymore i'm not doing customs at the moment because it is exhausting you know, like there's been so many times where I've had customers and it, it might be one out of like 50 customers that has that approach where it's the customer's always right and you need to kick up a fuss to get what you want. Mm. And I don't blame them because it, it is, you know, it's something that we've, I suppose, been brought up with and it's something that's been so, I guess, prevalent um, prior because we're so used to dealing with big, comp- uh, you know, big companies and you don't get anywhere otherwise. Yeah. Um But yeah, when it comes to, you know, that that one soul human that is, you know, creating art for you, the thing is, when it comes to customs, like, it it takes about three times longer than just making a piece of jewellery. So there's, you know, the whole process of, like, finding the perfect stone, the back and forth messaging, making sure the design's right, and we don't charge that much more. I don't charge that much more, I can't say for anyone else, but... Yeah, it is, it is a really tricky process and as soon as you have any sort of resistance and people start to sort of speak to you like you are just this like, you know, faceless person that's just providing them with a shiny thing, then it does create resistance on the creative path and it, I suppose a big thing for me was when as soon as I was asked to make things that don't sit well with me or haven't been approached with, I suppose, respect I don't want to provide that service mm, to the people. Yeah. And, yeah, that's, that's, I guess, where I've landed at the moment. It's like I need a break from it because there has been, I guess, not, not like massive disrespect, but there hasn't been enough respect for the fact that I am taking my time out of, you know, my making process to make something special for this person and it's not been sort of... Yeah. Like the gravity's not there. It's, it's simpler for me to just make stock and just sell it yeah. on Etsy. And if, yeah, if it's not being received the way that I want to receive it, I want them to receive it, then I will just pull back from it and just not,
1: yeah. not do those
0: jobs. I know that sounds a bit harsh, but it is a reality and it's it's the reality for a lot of jewelers. It's a reality for a lot of artists.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, like it doesn't make sense in a practical sense sometimes because, yeah, like if you're just in flow and you're creating what you, like are used to creating what you like, you don't have to overthink it. Mm. You're in flow. Like once you've created it, it's done. And then you can, you know, move on to creating other things. Whereas like, this is like, it it probably like feels a little bit like clunky and that you like, you can only get so far, but you have to check in. And then if you, you get it wrong or they're not happy with it, you have to go backwards. And so it takes a lot more and not only like the extra work on the piece, Mm. but then the extra back and forth and the difficulties of of communication. Um, You know, I obviously haven't done that, but I've... You know, I used to, like, make uh, some, like, music pieces and stuff for people for, like, custom things. And it's so difficult to, I mean, just to get communication across in general for humans of what we mean, Mm. but then add, like, an intangible artistic creation in our mind. And it's, you know, so much gets lost in translation.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think it's... When... When you're making something that is not, it doesn't sit well with you or you're like, you're really kind of like pushing it to make this happen. Mm. Um, it's not what you want to make. It creates so much like resistance. And I find it's something that artists constantly talk about. And I constantly talk about it with the people that are around me. That as soon as you have a custom piece that, that doesn't fit with what you want to be doing, you sit on it you put it on a shelf and it creates so much like lack of motivation you will like do anything around doing that piece and it slows everything else down Mm. like it slows all of your process down because you have to do this commission but you don't want to do it so you're off like you know cleaning vacuum in the house or whatever which you're not in the shed doing what you should be doing and yeah yeah, it, it doesn't just slow down on that piece it slows everything down like your motivation to actually work and yeah it's something that I've just constantly found with so many artists that's why a lot of people draw back from it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah.
1: I guess, like, it does... I think we've talked about this before in that it can give you, like, a insight into a new kind of style that you wouldn't have chosen before because you can get yeah. inspiration from it. But, yeah, like, obviously the trade-off is... Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's
1: how well the person who's asking you for that uh, custom is... Um, versed in communicating that effectively mm-hmm. um, you know how happy they are with like flexibility mm. you know and they're even just like yeah I feel like without flexibility it's it's just not going to work yeah, because you're, you're like you know that even though you're delivering an order to someone uh, as far as like an artistic piece that artist still got to like channel their own interpretation of that in their own mm. way and, and
0: that's why you ask them yeah <laughs> And this is this is what I say to a lot of my customers at the moment is if they want a piece from me, like as I said, I don't do customs. I sort of do kind of maybe. Um, if they want a piece from me, pretty much the way it happens is they choose a stone, they tell me what they want, be it a ring, what metal, uh, what ring size, or they want a pendant, whatever it is, and the whole artistic license is left up to me. Mm. And that's that's pretty much where I'm at with customs, and I think that's really important for a lot of a lot of makers to understand that it's okay to, to do that, to say, you know, no to, um, you know, their designs and saying yes to your own creative process.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I really like that. Yeah. Well, we've got close to the hour already. Like there's still a lot of, I I mean, we kind (laughs) of talked about that this would most likely eventuate into, um, multiple podcasts. Plus, yeah, obviously all the, all the stuff that you're going to be doing soon as far as, um. Yeah, helping budding jewelers and entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, like, after we delve into that a little bit more and you've, like, delved into that, I think we'd um, have a lot more to talk about, especially after the, the you do your presentation. I think it'd be good uh. to to debrief <laughs> that and do another podcast yeah, and, um, sure. and just delve into more specifics and things. Um, but, yeah, i just quickly like to finish off with just a couple of things. Like, um, one is just, I'd love to know how you fill up your own cup. Like, when things are getting overwhelming, mm-hmm. when you're, you know... Lacking inspiration, like where do you go? What do you do? Um, I know, like, you know, gaming is one of the few, getting out to nature and things like that. Um, yeah. And I would also love to, you know, talk about, you know, filling up your cup in just general, you know, human ways. Yeah. But also, I know that sometimes you fill up your cup by creating like completely different things, like you're creating um, some Koroks at the moment. Mm. Um, yeah, I'd love to just talk about all those different things. Yeah.
0: Well. So I think that the biggest way that I you know, fill up my cup, is by, you know, if I'm feeling stagnant or if I'm feeling like there's, you know, I need to sort of get out of my own brain or, like, shift, you know, what I'm doing at the moment, Um, there's no really set thing that I do to fill my cup up other than change of scenery. Mm. I find that 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 is the best thing. Like, when I'm sort of in my own head, I get out of my normal routine, do anything to get out of my normal routine. Like I might go for a walk somewhere new, I might go to a new cafe, you know, like I suppose wiring new neural pathways. Mm. And like, to me, that starts to open up doors. Yeah. Um, Talking to people that I wouldn't usually talk to. That, I know that sounds like a weird way to fill my cup up, but that's kind of what winds up sparking a lot of inspiration for me.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, That, and I suppose, uh, yeah, I mean, travel. Who, who doesn't that yeah. fill cup up for but um yeah delving into uh, my own sort of creative process and like delving into a new range or something you know I've got books full of designs of things that I haven't touched on and so if I'm feeling like I need to sort of you know branch out and stretch out creatively that's usually what I tend to do start to dabble in the many things that have been swirling around the brain for years
1: yeah cool mm. um Apologies for not giving you any advance for this question because I know it might take a little bit of thinking, but feel free to take a little time. If you could recommend one uh, movie slash or like TV show, (laughs) uh, one book. Oh,
0: God, okay. Yep.
1: And like, and preferably like a story based book, like a kind of novel kind of thing, Mm -hmm. and uh, one game, like one video game uh, that would. Yeah, the people should play if they want to get a, like a, a little bit of an insight into your psyche or what okay. inspires you and your art.
0: Uh, I feel like that's maybe a little easier than I thought it would be. Maybe I haven't had enough time to think about it. But first movie, I don't watch that many things, you know that. I There's not, there's not many things I've seen. <laughs> but Mad Max Fury Road inspires the heck out of me. Yeah. Like it's just... That has my brain firing in so many cylinders. So that... I like the
1: puns too because it's yeah. very relevant. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, book wise, this is only because I've started reading it recently. Um, Robin Hobb, particularly the second trilogy, I think it's the Live Ship Traders, um, where they flirt around in magical ships. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just a really beautiful book. Like they just describe things so beautifully, and it's such a it's such a different. Um, you know, it's like high fantasy, but it's such a different take on high fantasy to, to what you usually find. It's not like elves and dwarves and blah, blah, blah. It's like a whole different world. And, yeah, she's just such an amazing writer. Uh, so that definitely would be an interesting insight to the close psyche because I think a lot of inspiration is taken from the 16 Robin Hobb books. Hmm. Um, if you like fantasy, read them. Uh, what was the third one? Game. Game. Yeah. Ah, uh, the second last God of War. Whatever that was, whatever that uh, name was, the, the the one that
1: I think they just called it God of War, like okay. the where they like him and his son. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an amazing like I loved all the God of Wars like I painted a Kratos like what 12 years ago or something. So I've been playing those games um, since they came out. Mm. But the the second last one that came out that was kind of based on Norse mythology really inspired me so mm. much. And I think there's so much, like, not necessarily just the storyline, which I found amazing, the the artwork in it is incredible. Like, when they go to uh, Niflheim, I think it is, mm. where there's all the sort of, like, elven, swirly little archways and stuff, like, that just, yeah, that I don't know, my brain loves that. So that's there's definitely a lot of inspiration that's been taken from particularly that world in that particular game yeah Mm.
1: yeah and I just want to put out there that like yeah anyone that doesn't play games like it's not necessarily just like you know Mario jump on things collect stars (laughs) and stuff like you know me and Chloe both like chatted about our love of um story-based games especially and just like creative worlds and yeah I feel like even like God of War kind of like helped a bit of my father wounding stuff from Mm. my own like you know seeing Kratos like you know be this kind of disconnected distant dad and then like giving an insight into like his kind of like psyche and then yeah i don't know mm. just like kind of like heal something for me and like my relationship with my dad as well and totally. it's all from video games so yeah. don't underestimate yeah if that's just like a little prompt it's like inspiration can literally come from the strangest places
0: yeah well, i think video games like they are a an amazing combination of all the arts pretty much so it's mm, like yeah you know, I think they really are underrated. They have they have a, a stigma attached to them where you know you're just going to get a neck beard and sit in your basement and eat for <laughs> the rest of your life. But you know, you could also become an artist. <laughs> there you go.
1: That's a perfect place to end it. The two paths that are open to you. <laughs> Choose your own adventure. Um, yeah, cool. Did you want to just leave um, leave the listeners with any other little? Um, Clo fairy, words of wisdom?
0: I don't think there's anything else, to be honest. I've kind of weaved all the little bits of info that I want to put in there. I can't really think of anything currently.
1: Yeah, cool. Um, If you could drop the best places to contact you.
0: Best place to contact me, easiest way to contact me is Instagram at Jewelry. Uh, I am on Facebook, I'm on Etsy, have website, blah, blah, blah. But Instagram's the one that I use the most and I barely look at my Facebook. So, Cool. Yeah.
1: Go to Insta. I will put uh, all of Chloe's details in the show notes below so you can just click that or feel free to look her up or you might already be part of her community. And if so, thank mm-hmm. you for being a part of this podcast. And um, Yeah, thank you, Chloe, so much. I know this was like a big thing, like, obviously, like, you're very... Th- I think, like, that happens a lot with creatives, like, and I get that like that sometimes. I definitely have my hermit creator mad scientist times, um, mm-hmm. but also, I am in mean, like, obviously I teach, so I've developed a lot of skills in that area. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, props to you. Um, and, yeah, thank you for saying yes to this podcast. And, um, yeah, looking me forward to the next one when yeah. we do. And, uh, yeah, and all the things that you do from here
0: mm, Yeah, thanks for having me on it's it's um it's good to be able to tell the story i guess you know it's a great platform to tell the people about the clo.
1: yeah and i think even in the next one we, we might go through because i feel like stories are good like that and a lot of the like the cool books i've read um it's kind of like they'll tell like a short version of the story but then they'll start to elaborate on certain mm, bits because I, sure. I know there's more aspects of that that i want to touch on um in specific parts of your story but um to be continued Thank you for being a part of and listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd love to ask you one thing tap that subscribe button it helps us to be able to do more podcasts and bring more magic to you all a massive thank you to chloe fraser of Fay folk jewelry for being my guest for this episode i put everything you need to get in touch with chloe in the show notes below there's also a link in the show notes to get in touch with myself and find out more about what we do here at the house of mages thank you again for listening i'll speak to you soon and until then make yoga magic again